0: Welcome to the Spotlight Series, presented by Surviving Society. In these episodes, Chantel and Tiso take a step back and hand over hosting to academics, activists and grassroots community organisations. These are a range of episodes positioned locally and globally to tell the stories that need to be heard. Enjoy. Welcome to Surviving Society Spotlight Season. My name is Doran Wallace and I'm your guest host for this episode. I'm an assistant professor of sociology and education at Brandeis University in the United States and research associate at the Center on the Dynamics of Ethnicity at the University of Manchester. I am joined today um, by the legend
1: Bernard Cord. Well, I'm from Grenada in the Caribbean and uh, I went to Brandeis University as a student, did my first degree there in economics and then went to Sussex University in England and did a master's degree there, and did all the work for the PhD. Did the field research in Central America, and then decided to enter politics rather than finish the first and last chapters, which is all I had left to do for my PhD. So I took a different course. Um, but in between, while in England, of course, I got myself involved, education movement and education struggle, education research.
0: So that's really in a nutshell. Right, Bernard Court is the author of the most celebrated 1971 text how the West Indian child is made educationally subnormal in the British school system. 2021 marks 50 years since the publication of this important text, which underscored not simply the processes but the mechanisms by which um, Black Caribbean children were made and labelled by the British state as educationally subnormal. Bernard Court's work is central, um, absolutely central, um, to the analysis of race and inequality in the British educational system. It's pivotal to um, the sociology of Education in Britain, and I would argue quite central to Black British studies. Um, You cannot explore um, the history of Black education in Britain without considering this most important text. And so, though Bernard, you didn't mention it, (laughs) I need to let the audience know really the contribution your work um, has um, made then and continues to make now um, in sort of naming um, and uprooting inequalities um, that many deem to be so central. Um, to um, Caribbean identities or central um, to the British state. So thank you, thank you for your important work. Um, When I first heard about the label education is subnormal, I was in a church in Clapham Common with uh, the teacher of a Black supplementary school and uh, a pastor who helped to develop this Black supplementary school. And I was about to start a research project uh, when the pastor insisted that I um, pay attention to the history of education um, in Britain. I'm a sociologist by training, so I didn't really think that I needed to pay attention to the history. But he was insistent. In the process, he mentioned that um, there's a book I need to read, I need to go find, called How the West Indian Child is Made Educationally Subnormal. And I thought, oh, what a provocative title. It's interesting. (laughs) They came to Britain in the 70s. They were labeled as educationally subnormal. And I said to my, I remember being completely shocked and they repeated it in unison. No, education is subnormal. Now, to our 20th century year, this just rings um, of inequality. It smacks of racism and injustice. But this was the formal language used by the British government to label a certain group of students. I wondered if you could provide for us um, the political context necessary for understanding that label and then deconstructing it. I believe
1: that, understand the British education system, one has to understand that Britain is rooted deeply for centuries, if not millennia, in classism. You know, uh, you have the aristocracy, and they built schools for themselves, universities, and secondary schools in the Middle Ages until 1944 for them to actually pass a law to provide universal secondary education. In other words, the white working class the vast majority of the British indigenous population had no right to secondary education as late as the end of the second world war so in a sense we have to understand that context before black people come on the scene so to speak in the late 40s and the 50s and the early 60s the so-called windrush generation because ESN, i type education is subnormal was invented and part of the law of Britain, education acts in Britain before black people arrived. And the only white working class were in it. And then blacks came and they say, aha, we have a good place to put them. So there's a wider political, historical, legal context. Black kids come now and they come with emotional disturbance in some cases because their parents went ahead on the banana boat, to go up to England, and they sent for the kids later. So there's a gap of a few years. So a child very young may be encountering a parent that they never really got to know very well. And then sometimes one of the parents who has sent for them is now remarried so they're in a stepmother or stepfather situation. And the other children now that have been born up in England to this new marriage, new relationship. So there are a lot of factors like this. Then they come from speaking Jamaican or other Caribbean linguals, languages, and they encounter English. And let me tell you, English has many different varieties as well. When I started teaching at the East London School, it took me a while to understand what the children were saying because they were not speaking standard English. So the fact is that it is a culture shock of a different language, different pronunciation, different speaking, different aspects of the culture, everything. And they put them, give them IQ tests in a situation of emotional disturbance, linguistic confusion, cultural dissonance. And then they say, ah, these kids are not right. They're very dumb. Put them all in ESN schools so that the official statistics, which the Inner London Education Authority, their own internal investigation, showed that a black kid was four times more likely to be put in one of these schools for the education is subnormal. Remember, that's the legal title of the schools. Not something invented by me or the community. Four times more likely, if you're black, to be put in those schools than if you're white. Wrongly. In fact, they say wrongly put in these schools. The actual internal report said four times more likely to be wrongly placed. In an SN school, if you're black and if you're white, the actual report says that. They give the statistics and everything, and then the report says, basically, in my words, but that's the essence. Let's keep it quiet. Shelve the report. Don't make it ever public. Just continue to do what we're doing.
0: See that this report wanted you know, the, the desire was for it to be shelved, for us to keep it hush hush, as we'd say. Your work makes this public, so I wonder if you could set not just the sort of. The, the context for the academic work that you do. But what's moving about your work is that you're a scholar activist, right? Makes me think of this new book by my colleague, Remy Joseph Salisbury, um, and his colleague, um, Laura Conley, that's focused on um, scholar activism in Britain. Um, But I wonder if you could talk with me about that dimension. But before doing so, I want to clarify, though, one quick thing. Because you say, you know, when Black people came on the scenes in, in the 1940s, which usually um, historians of, of Black history have become critical of, of this sort of what they call this wind rush as origins narrative, as if Black people weren't in Britain before in the 1940s, right? As if it was only through or primarily through wind rush that we arrived. When we were here, part of troops fighting in World War One and World War Two, we were here as gifted students brought over to study at elite universities, right? Right. Um, We're here uh, in in smaller numbers, absolutely. And the history of Black people precedes Windrush.
1: It's an important point. In fact, there are incontrovertible records of Black people living in Britain in Roman times when the Romans had conquered and occupied Britain. So that's the first point. Secondly, there there are quite a number of people, including some in prominent positions in Tudor Britain, of Elizabeth I, and even of Henry VII and Henry VIII, which would have been the father and grandfather of Elizabeth I. Go back that far. However, some academics have made the mistake, and journalists too, have made the mistake of saying, ah, what we're seeing now, the kind of racism today and from the 17th century, you know, when the concept of white and black and that whole thing started around the 17th century, late 17th century with the Virginia colony, British colony of Virginia and Maryland and all that. And the first time the law, I think it's the law of 1674 or five, somewhere around there, actually for the first time talks about whites. Before that, it talks about Irish, German, French.
0: Ethnicity, mm-hmm. nationality.
1: And nationalities and ethnicities in that narrow sense. concept of white versus black starts around the late, somewhere around 1670 something, right? Mm-hmm. in the colony of Virginia. And, and then they get into the miscegenation laws and things like that. Until then, blacks and whites actually lived in the same quarters, worked alongside each other in the fields, even though so, there were different status. Some were slaves, some were free, some were indentured. You know, there was a mixture of status. They all worked <laughs> together in the fields and they did a lot of things. All that was separated. And the whites were then, for the first time, by law, given special privileges, being able to own land. Anyhow, the bottom line is, Many academics have said, ah, that's wrong. That's not where this white supremacy and the concept of whiteness and white privilege starts. It goes back to Elizabeth I, ordering the expulsion of all blacks from Britain. One scholar in Britain has pointed out that this is a fallacy, not a fallacy that they were there. Concept attempt to bring the concept of whiteness and white privilege back to Elizabeth I is a mistake. And she, in her work, explained why that is so. To come to your specific question, I talked about the winning generation for several reasons. One, politically and socially, we're talking vast numbers now. And you're talking people who have come on such a scale that within a few years, there's a gap of a few years while the kids come and join them, or they have kids within, yeah. which take a while before they reach school age, over 10 to 15 years before the numbers in school of children match the numbers of adults who are working in the hospitals and the trains on the buses and in the factories it was actually what is spent for them in the caribbean to come to britain to rebuild the country and again remember that there were black people from the caribbean who went to britain as you say for the first world war i know people like that mm-hmm. and from the second world war many returned not a lot of those on the wind ship. And by the way, that was not the first ship that came in. They discovered that one, they thought it was the first, and so that's how Windward's generation was named. We're talking about history
0: in this moment because it helps us to understand um, contemporary meaning making. I'd love to call people's attention to Kanita um, Hammond-Perry's book, London is the Place for Me, which sort of illuminates a sort of history of Black people um, before, during, and after Windrush, right? But we were talking about the political context of how you came to be your work, right? Um, and I wanted to tell us more. How did you decide to um, pen
1: this important text? Well, this is the point. This is what I keep saying every time I give a public talk, public lecture, any time I speak. Or give an interview, I keep stressing that I came to Britain to study development economics Mm -hmm. and to return to Grenada to help to transform the economic and social circumstances of Grenada. Mm -hmm. I I was not a migrant. I flew in, go to Sussex, work there full time, and then go back home at the end of getting my degree. That was my goal. So that marks me as very different from the Windrush generation, so called um i was not a migrant then or an immigrant if you're looking at it from the point of view of those arriving migrant if you're talking about coming from the caribbean but rather i was a student a foreign student who came to do a degree and leave no i was sucked into the politics what you might call education politics not party politics not you know standard politics and Uh, not partisan politics Right, exactly. And, <laughs> right. and that is why I keep stressing in all my talks everywhere that this book was really written by the Caribbean community.
0: That's right.
1: I was just simply mobilized and recruited. You write it. But mm. <laughs> well, why me? I, am, I feel it's development economics. Yes, but you're teaching in the schools. You're one of the very few black teachers. In, and I was only teaching in the schools to pay my fees to Sussex to do a DFIL. That's all. I got myself first running youth clubs, including youth clubs for children from seven of these so-called ESN schools. And then I ended up teaching at two of these ESN schools full time. And that was to pay my university fees. So I'm doing that, and I'm literally with my wife on a dance floor in a dance organized by Grenadians in Tulsil, south of the Thames River. <laughs> and the people from every Caribbean territory, from Bahamas to Guyana and everywhere in between. Mm. And there's roti and there's palau, and there's all the Caribbean food you can think of, including so, It's all there. Sounds and like bacanal. Yeah, bacchanal. It's <laughs> the music of Sparrow and Kitchener. That's remember before the days of reggae. Mm. Right? And so it's all Trinidad, Eastern Caribbean music. Lord Kitchener and um, Mighty, Mighty Sparrow. And then Phil and I, my wife, we're dancing on the floor, there's one couple dancing next to us and then the husband looks and he says, he says, excuse me, I've been told you're one of those teachers, you're one of the teachers at those schools and said yes. And he says, well, you know, I have a son there and this and that. And with schools, just, let's just clarify for the audience, which schools do you mean? He didn't say he, these schools, meaning the ESN schools. Education right. is abnormal. But some of those who were to join in the discussion asked about schools in general. Because remember, there were ESN schools, and then there were ESN streams That's in the so called right. regular schools. Mm-hmm. And,
0: then and the other, still,
1: they didn't call them ESN, but they were in practice ESN. Right. So they had and, all these things.
0: And still, few black teachers in that context. Very few. Right. Very so, few. Exactly. Absolutely. In,
1: you know, so that so that is why I was singled out because they say, hey, we hear you teaching in this. Is it true? And I say yes. And they say, well, what's going on there? It's come home after three, four years. They can't do simple math. They can't read a book, even the simplest book. What's going on? Well, I start answering his questions. He and his wife. Next thing you know, all the other couples on the dance floor drift over. They stop dancing music still playing and open, nobody dancing. Uh. Those who were sitting down eating a plate of food and didn't come over. And literally, the mashup within half an hour of the Fed starting that night, that mashup was no more Fed for the night, no more dancing, nothing. It was, I was questioned for the next few hours. And at the end of it, by the way, several of the people there, although they were all parents, they were also community activists. That's the, the political thing coming in here now. Mm-hmm. One of them was a guy called Jeff Crawford. I used to see him on TV all the time. He was complaining about police harassment of black, black um, children, black youth, and so on. There were people on the TV complaining about landlords and what was happening to them in that context and the breaching of the rent act and so on. So the fact is that I saw some of these people on TV. That's why I knew them. I see these people are celebrities, in my view, you know, in my perspective. I was like, I'm young, you know. At that time, I was what? Uh, this is 1970. This is happening, April 70. So I'm 25, OK? <laughs> 25 going on 26. They said, we have a conference in three months' time. You have to come. You have to write a paper for this conference. I say, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I am just paying my fees by this job. My feel is economic development. I know nothing about education. I have no qualifications in it. I have no teacher certificate. Okay, I taught in Grenada at secondary school, and I taught at Brandeis University program. But that's what jobs. Okay, I love teaching. I'm passionate about it. That's true. I have no qualifications. It's not my career path. My career path is development economics. See, we're not interested in that. Make yourself an expert in education. Now, there's a three-story building education library or institute, whatever it is, of the London University. Go there for the next three months and combine what you have described to us is happening in the classroom and see what studies have been done by other people around the world that would provide independent research findings that match your experience in the classroom. That was not the language. That's the essence of what they said to me. Right. So you go and make yourself an expert. Then they went on to make the mistake of saying to me, Samuel Selvan is going to be there speaking too, and Andrew Salpi is going to be there speaking too. No, these were my heroes among novelists, wow. novelists. When I was in Form 6 in the Grenada Boys Secondary School, I devoured all their novels. These are mm. my heroes. How could I be on the, same, on the same platform with these guys? This is crazy. I'm trembling, I tell you I'm a youth. <laughs> so I say, no, 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 I can't be with these people, and they say, you have no choice. Oh. That's what I was told. Pressure of a whole people from Hackney, people from every borough. You know, um Ealing, and Hammersmith, mm. um, Southall. They were all there.
0: Wow. Littenstone.
1: Liden, you no. Know, so to give
0: context for the for for the for the audience, we're hearing of folks from um, North and South London, yes. East London, right? Yes. All yes, East London, West London,
1: yeah. above the Thames River, below the Thames, everywhere. Yeah. Actual yeah. FET, so called FET, it ended up being a so called FET, was in Tulsail, which is south of the Thames. Mm. So um, I said, okay, okay, I'll do the paper. It's a 10 page paper, you know, 15, 20 pages at the most. Fine. So I went and did the research as best I could in that period. And but it was in the summer, you know, early summer, uh, May, June, so I can't remember exactly when, but it was sometime in the summer. And um, I made a the presentation. There were 200, maybe maybe a bit more than 200, you know, people present. Most of them, if not all of them, were parents, but they were all community activists. They were all passionate about what was happening, and um, they didn't have the facts. They didn't have the knowledge. You know, they didn't know the details, and so they were demanding that I do it, that I get this information and get it out. So I made my presentation, and at the end of it. They all surrounded me and says, after have to turn it in trouble. So there's no way this book could have been written on my own. I wouldn't mm-hmm. have been in education mm-hmm. at all. I wouldn't have been doing education research. Mm-hmm. That is why I say, I can't, at one level, I cannot claim this book. The Caribbean community forced my hand. They say, hey, you're one of the few people teaching you the thing. you know what's going on in there? Mm-hmm. You and listen to the point they made. They said, you are in development economics. I said, I'm in development. They say, yes, but that means that you know how to do research, and you know how to write. Take those two now, combine them with what you're discovering in the schools and give us that book. So, you know, they were creative enough to see, that hey, we have to make do with what we have. We don't have an educationalist in our midst. We don't have a person trained in educational psychology or even in teacher training, but he knows how to do research and he knows how to write. And you're teaching in the schools. You can write the book.
0: And I was honored to go and write book. Yeah, no, I, I think that's such powerful context that you're providing. I think even teachers, youth workers, parents, and activists who hear about um, your book, How the West Indian Child has Made Education Subnormal, May not be familiar with the um, the impetus for the project, right? That this wasn't some you know siloed project that you dreamed of in a library some, near some graveyard. Right. This was community informed. This was critical um, community engaged research. And if I may step back, I think it's such a a, a challenge. I think to what we understand the university to be about. Right. What <laughs> is the university? What a resource for the public good. And if it isn't. Why aren't we pushing back? I know there are no doubt scholars and activists all across the world pushing right. back on the corporatization of the university where we are generating knowledge that's not of the public good. But what that's you true. demonstrate, and this is a sociology podcast and I want to underscore this, what you demonstrate is that sociology can be the people's science. You Absolutely. can marshal the set of resources, the capacity to, you know, to, to, to assess literature, to, to conduct research, to write and synthesize something. In a way that's of the public good, right? And so you're signaling, I think for me, the importance of public sociology, sociology that's of the public good that makes a difference. And to your credit, Bernard, you know, you're you're saying that this was the impetus for this was the Caribbean community. And they were grassroots, community alliance, workers' organizations talking about these things typically at a smaller scale, but with this text, you were able to bring national and international attention. Because I want you to talk about how the New York Times ran a piece about this book.
1: Yes, yes, at the same yes. Time,
0: right? People Actually. forget this history, right? That's so yes. important to this text. But I want to underscore the importance of public sociology, how we have to make sure that sociology isn't simply a classroom exercise, that we're not simply thinking about theorists for their own sake right, right. we are yes. thinking about how knowledge becomes public resource for transforming Absolutely. society and changing the yes. world yes tell yes. more about the sort of international attention that came when this went because I think you were interviewed by the BBC it was a tense interview from the record oh Lord
1: it was actually I was interviewed by almost every program of the BBC wow no so I was doing interviews all at midnight you know literally every program of the BBC you know they had all these different programs. Um, uh, and each one of them wanted their interview with me. So I was being constantly, literally, they would send a car and bring me to the studio. And I'd be doing interviews in every single program. Also, uh, that was radio. Same happened with TV and with the newspapers. It started with the Guardian newspaper um, asking me, and they published Chapter 5 the day of the official publication of the book and they publish it on their op-ed page i said okay sure what is interesting is i got 17 letters the next morning by the way those were the days when there was two times mail was delivered Mm -hmm. same day delivery which you paid more and overnight delivery that's how efficient Public public office was in Britain back in those days. Wow, wow. So the very next day after the book was published, it was published on May the 6th. On the mm-hmm. morning of May the 7th, I'm getting 17 letters from different parts of Britain. Don't ask me how they get my phone, my address. I don't know. Of course, my telephone was in the book and, you know, telephone book and so on. So I probably got mm-hmm. it that way. And I got 33 phone calls. Again, it would have checked the phone book. My point is 33 phone calls from all over Britain. All the way from Glasgow in Scotland, you
0: know,
1: within mm-hmm. 24 hours from all kinds of
0: people. So and I must tell, tell you, no, go ahead, sorry. Tell us a bit more about the sort of, um, I think folks may be familiar with the scope of um, the work in the UK and what it means. Um, and for folks who've seen Small Acts by Steve McQueen, um, that may have been your first time hearing about um, uh, the term education is subnormal, but what we're hoping this podcast does is sort of illuminates um, the, the, the longer history um, uh, behind um, this term um, and the work done to sort of push against it. Um, you may have also heard about it from uh, Latanya Shannon's um, documentary series that came up from the BBC later, um, earlier this year, I believe, but after Small Acts, entitled Subnormal, a British Scandal. Um, And you were featured very prominently um, into being interviewed in that. So was sociologist, Samley Tomlinson Tomlinson, and a number of um, older folks now, but then young people who were labeled as educationists of normal. So we may have a sense of its national significance, but talk to me about the international attention that this um, work of yours um, brought to bear um, on on, on the British context.
1: Well, I was shocked when, of my brothers in the States sent me page two of the New York Times, except for the adverts on that page. The entire page was a news report on my book. They sent a reporter and photographer to my flat in Laytonstone where my wife and I lived, Mm. um, to take a photo of me in my living room and to interview me. I didn't I thought, you know, a one paragraph, some <laughs> I didn't mm-hmm. expect page two of the New York Times. And a number of black teachers in Britain, in and in, in the United States, especially New York and one or two other areas, got letters, I got phone calls, I got you know some feedback on that from them. In some cases, they came to Britain, like on holiday and so on, you know, taking mm-hmm. a break and so on during the summertime. And they checked me out again. It went to the trouble of finding out how to reach me, you know, and they um, were saying, you "No, know, we have a version of that." You know, it's not called ESN, and you know, things are different in many ways, but there are similarities um, that you know that makes our, it's our interest in something like this, you know. So although there are differences, there are certain dimensions. I never pursued that study. You know, because I, my hands were full, let me tell you. I was being asked to come to parents' group meetings, youth group meetings, community meetings up and down Britain, in every city, in every town, in every borough. And so for the next five months before I left Britain to do my field research in Central America, I was holding five meetings a day.
0: Oh, that's... Five
1: meetings a day, public meetings.
0: I so appreciate your sharing that because the you know universities in Britain in particular, the same is true in the United States. We're seeing um, it even trickle to 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 the Caribbean, are being um, bombarded, you could say, by a set of metrics that you need to meet. Right, not only is there evaluation of scholarship, but your impact. Um, and, you know, this then determines the resources that departments and the university of large is able to get. But here yes. you were with no ref requirements, right? Doing yes. work that was community, not just community engaged, but community led. You were yes. you were asked to do something that you have- Community no-designed. dictated. Absolutely, community <laughs> initiated. In
1: fact, but let you- me say this too. Let me make another mm-hmm. point. I did not organize or play any part in organizing any of the five meetings per day that I attended in the five months between the book coming out and my leave in Britain. I had no role whatsoever in organizing any of those meetings. either the ones with the communities, with parents, with teachers, none. That is significant. Yeah. It, I, it did nothing to do with that. No, it, it sought me out and says, come, come and tell us more about this. And we want to ask you questions about this. This is remarkable. Let me just say this. When I was in Britain three and a half years ago, I had, a, I had a meeting in Brixton, and it was very well attended and, and very enthusiastic, and so on. And um, one guy got up; he was doing a masters, black, black Caribbean, got up and uh, he actually his parents would be, grand, you know, from the Caribbean. He would be born in Britain, and he said, uh, "The context in which you wrote, wrote this book, were you were you doing a masters or a PhD in education? Is that?" how you came to write a book. <laughs> and I was stunned. You know, I said, I said, no, I did economics for my first degree and I was trying to do a field also in economics. Uh, I had nothing to do with education. And he was shocked. He was kind of like stunned for a while. He didn't know what to say next. Mm-hmm. You know? And I see a lot of youths around him because it was like a side of them You know, that showed up. In fact, and by the way, Many of those youths came to the Princeton meeting and to the one I held at Birmingham City University, one in Bradford, the one in Nottingham, in different parts of Britain. These young people came and they had a copy of that book, the original, wow. the first edition. Wow. Was the and they said, we want to take a photo with you with it. Mm. I said, what are you doing to this book? Where do you get this book, you're in your 20s. See, grandfather gave me, or my grandmother oh. gave me. And mm. the ones a bit older said, my mother or my father gave me. So they said, Actually,
0: handing on the book. <laughs> I'm a passionate sociologist. I care deeply about the field. Um, and I'm a cultural sociologist of education in particular. Your commentary is reminding me of the importance of public sociology, why yes. it is important to write something that is meaningful beyond just our journal articles that we're often pushed to write, or simply beyond the grant applications we have to put in. But when you create a resource that generations later a grandparent can pass down to their yes. children or their children's <laughs> children. And the reason why I laugh is because I claim no credit its best. That is, that is what sociology is about. Yes. The reason why I laugh is
1: because I claim no credit because it would never have been done. Mm-hmm. Well, I not dragooned into doing it because that was, I feel that was not my interest. Mm-hmm. I didn't come with that aspiration. I didn't come to the green education. There was nothing. I, so in other words, that's why, in the old days, I would say to people who were asking, "Oh, I said that was an accident." They say, "What do you mean it's an accident?" I say, "In the sense that this happened, it started at a party, at
0: a on mm. the dance floor." So let me, let me, let me ask you this um, now, um, Bernard. Um, you've given us some sense of the impetus for the work you've given us some sense of the impact of the work both nationally and internationally with media coverage but more importantly beyond the media the sort of local community engagement to sort of organize these meetings right To i imagine conscientize activate um, a movement among parents and there's a you know we know about the black supplementary schools in britain we also know about the black parents movement in britain your book comes before right that movement or some could say the early phases of that movement the
1: early phases it right was, there, was, there was activity before me absolutely
0: before absolutely absolutely it just
1: as it gave it a great impetus and that early activity is basically what said to me you have to do it that's could right say to people who were, were leading the struggle before mm-hmm. me before i was, was recruited right. recruited me so that it then gave an impetus. And to be honest, I had no idea it would have this impact. Let me think. Mm-hmm. This is where I keep telling people about the power of social capital
0: because mm. talk to, let's break that down let's say okay. so. sociologists will be attuned to this but let's right. break it down and i don't know if right. you're going to go up with the putnam de- definition of which is more along the lines of, of of economics or if you're going to use the Pierre Bourdieu um understanding of social capital let's hear which one you're going to go with <laughs> remember i'm an economist huh? i know i know <laughs> no,
1: no no my definition of social capital is a situation where a community of people have a common identity, common values, common goals in the broadest sense, and seek to watch each other's back, protect each other, help each other out. When one family runs out of salt or sugar or butter, they call over the, the, the kitchen window to the neighbor next door. Hey, you have any? Send it over, a share. You are killed and you give in trouble, and you could be a mile away from your home, whichever adult are wrong we will give you one set of leaks. I'm not supporting capital punishment. I'm just telling you what was going on back in those days. And then when you go home and you report to your parents, you get a second set of leaks. It's the question of it takes a village, okay? In that case, unfortunately, it was a corporal punishment model. But the important thing is look after each other, look out for each other. All of that is social capital. When we have the financial thing, we have very poor people. They get a little wages and they put aside a piece of it each week or each fortnight in what they call a susu in some islands and Adna in other islands, it, uh-huh. depending which island has a different name, uh-huh. and uh, it means that you pull it and then your turn comes, every 12 weeks or so, your turn comes and you get the whole pot. pot. all the 12 people that put the money in, you get 12 times that amount, so you can open a little shop or expand your shop, or buy a sewing machine and start sewing clothes to make an extra income. In other words, it becomes a vehicle for small business, right? Things like that. Um, Add on a room to your house. So these are all examples of people working together without asking for a wage or salary, helping each other without material recompense. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And on the- Collectively, they benefit from it. Help each other harvest crops to plow the field, to to build a house, a wooden house or whatever it is, all of that is social
0: capital. And from a sociological perspective, um, social capital quite plainly speaks to a set of networks, embedded networks, right, relations of power um, that are immaterial resources that can be um, transformed or that can have economic return, right? So who you know, we say can help you to get to where you want to go for instance right. you may know uh, be a part of a network that can help you to get into university or you may know someone who can help you to get that job right part of that is social capital so how you're de- we're describing it differently but there's a fundamental connection here about the power of networks right To right. so sort of the reason um, i
1: have focused on that because what you have described there could apply to the upper class the old boy network and the old school type. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whereas my definition now is poor people now struggling to put up a house, to put up a room, a little shack, Um, struggling with a quarter acre land. You know, in other words, struggling to put together a little bit of money to buy a sewing machine or a snow cone machine. So in other words, we're saying the same thing. It's just that your definition covers the spectrum, the class spectrum, whereas my definition deals with the poorest, most marginalized, most disadvantaged materially.
0: And i'm so pleased you mentioned that because i think typically in british sociology of education we've spent a fair amount of time drawing on Pierre bourgeois analysis on social cultural and economic capital by paying attention to the middle classes and elites as right. if they are the only ones who have access to social economic and and and, and cultural capital when right. we know this is not the case now you know working class and economically disadvantaged communities may may not have access to what sociologists um, Prudence Carter refers to as dominant forms right. of social right. and cultural capital, but that does not mean that they don't have access to cultural capital in their or social capital in their own absolutely. networks, right? And that's why go so far to to say, that's why they survive. I go oh, so far as
1: to say that survival of the poorest people in a community, ones that are most oppressed, ones that are most marginalised, their survival depends on social capital. So, so they don't have that, that community
0: uh-huh. interest so watching each other's back they would they would they would disappear they would die so let me ask leave. you now let me ask you now bernard uh, with a few minutes remaining here we are 50 years after the publication of your important text this community initiated community engaged community promoted text how the west indian child is made education is abnormal that has been significant for sociology of education race and inequality the study of race and inequality in Britain, um, and Black British studies. Here we are some 50 years later. And I have one question for you. How still is the Black Caribbean child or the West, End, West Indian child made educationally some normal? Can you talk to us about some of the mechanisms that um, persist, that were around in the 1970s, that but that persist today to marginalize Black Caribbean students and others?
1: Right. Well, I like to put it, in terms of what I call the three supremacies class supremacy, race supremacy, and gender supremacy. Upper class supremacy, white supremacy, and male supremacy. Mm. And the ability of these things, the resilience, especially the first two, because the women's suffrage movement in the first two decades of the 20th century, mm-hmm. and then later the feminist movement, And then more recently, the Me Too movement have all contributed. We know that there are many glass ceilings still. Mm -hmm. We know that. But In terms of class and race, those are the ones that are most prominent still, especially in education. And the fact of the matter is the socialization process ensures its continuation. This is why it goes from generation to generation. This is why people say to themselves, how is it possible that after 50 years, the same foolishness going on? very little change and i say to them that's why people talk about systemic racism
0: mm-hmm.
1: why because different principles the different teachers know right different right. time period new policies different education authority um, leadership mm-hmm. different government even of the same party different officials prime minister cabinet everybody has changed multiple times Nothing has changed. Everything has changed personnel wise. Nothing has changed in terms of the impact on people's lives. And that is the proof that we're dealing with something systemic. And therefore, therefore to focus on the one or two teachers who, who, who insult openly in an openly racist way children in the schools is to fail to see the big picture. Mm-hmm. The big picture is not the fellas at a football stadium who throw bananas at black bears. Let's not get carried away by that. There's systemic racism. And it has to do with the fact that you cannot conquer one ethnicity, one region of the world cannot conquer the entire rest of the world. North America, South America, Africa, Asia, Australia, all over the world, conquer them. Massive amounts of genocide is in these places. Other cases, slavery. In chains, whipping, beating, killing. Extraordinary conduct over a period of hundreds of years without it being justified. You have your, your ideology must be in keeping with your actions, or you go mad. You will go mad. If your actions deviate fundamentally and contradictorily from your ideology, you become schizophrenic, you start drinking liquor, you start using drugs. You will go crazy. So therefore, you have to have a justification and it is, blacks are subhuman. Mm-hmm. Blacks and brown people are subhuman. In other words, you have a, and you see subhuman and you notice now we're talking subnormal. The fact is that there is a continuity. The 19th century, white scientists in Europe, especially, not only in Europe, spent a lot of time proving the inferiority of black people and they call it science. Right up to when I was doing the book, you had a guy called Iseng, who was a professor of educational psychology at London University, he was the most prestigious professor in the field at the time, and he was openly saying black people in white, he was writing that in his books. And he was constructing a new test. That would ensure that his answers would be correct, because they were ridiculous tests, you know you can't give a kid wrong when, he, when you put up. From the Caribbean and he doesn't know tap, he knows pipe. He knows the same thing, but he knows it by a different name. Waveny Bushell made that point in the program, um, the, the documentary Subnormal, because she was the one and only back nutrition psychologist in Britain at that time that I know of. And so she saw all of this nonsense, she saw that these tests were hopelessly biased. But anyhow, back to the main thing. The main thing, therefore, is that intergenerational linkages in terms of white racism, in terms of white superiority. And that's the important thing, a feeling of superiority. This is in it is unconscious. It is subconscious so that you automatically assume that a Black kid is of poor intelligence. There are full professors now, leading professors at universities in Britain right now, when they came to Britain at 10 and 11, were told not very bright and they put them them in in the usual bottom streams that they could think of right they've they've done this repeatedly you know i i know some of these people i mean it's just amazing i was helping a a, a young woman with her her phd in education a few years ago 15 years ago no but 20 years ago and she when she came to britain at 10 11. uh, they, they were these there's been streams on the grounds that she's not very bright. And they put her, when she reached Form 5, they put her, what we call Form 5 at that time, they put her in a stream where you could not sit, what we would call O levels at that time, now they call DCSC. Okay. You could not sit it at a level that could give you an A or a B. The highest you could get is a C, which means you cannot go on to do A levels. In other words, they put them to sit the exams at a level on the grounds that they're not up to it. So she had to leave school and go to college for further education. First of all, get O levels or the equivalent, good enough to, get, to do A levels. And when I was seeing her, she had two master's degrees and she was doing an upgrade.
0: Right, right.
1: She was not even permitted to do the GCSEs. So this was the structure. I appreciate I'm saying to you. I'm saying to you, forgive me, I'm saying to you that fundamentally, You have a situation where something that benefits those at the top are maintained over the centuries because it's passed down through the socialization process, the inherent belief in the inferiority of Blacks, and all that follows. The teacher expectations come from that. The teachers are not even conscious of it. And most of them are not consciously racist. There's nothing racist about them. They'll be horrified to be
0: considered racist i, I, agree, with so.
1: I, I agree with you, you that so.
0: they, i agree that they would be horrified to be considered uh, considered racist much of what i find fascinating in, in the contemporary moment is an investment in talking about subconscious the subconscious that's um insane. as if there aren't conscious um, right. elements at work but i agree with you that the vast uh, majority uh, of our our leaders right. our teachers have but remember there, there are the people who are good intentions right but there are people who are benefiting from the system that's right tabloid media that openly engages
1: in racist um Articles and news items and so on. They sell more papers. They sell. They, they make profits from being racist. You know there, there are segments of the society that benefit. Those those men who get all the top jobs in the boardroom are doing so at the expense of women and blacks and Browns. The fact of the matter is that apart from the socialization process working its way through the centuries, there are also every one of those centuries people at certain key junctures in the system, white and male, and upper class, that's what they have in common, who benefit from keeping the system the way it is. And therefore, that's another factor. Why do you think there's so much opposition
0: to affirmative action? appreciate so much that you're sharing with us. Uh, Bernard, I want to underscore some of the uh, mechanisms that you noted in 1971 that prevail in 2021. My colleague Remy Joseph Salisbury and I have, uh, in a 50-year reflection on your important work, published a piece in Ethnic and Racial Studies. um, That's a riff off of your original title is the question that I pose to you, how still is the Black Caribbean child-made education subnormal? And we find um, some of the principal mechanisms um, that you spoke about are still in place, speaking to the systemic nature of racial inequality in education, right? So, um, academic tracking or ability grouping. In your time, they may have referred to it as streaming, but we're seeing that it has, we've, most schools have uh, done away with streaming, recognizing yes. what it does, but yes. we still have a different form called setting, which is perhaps the most dominant. Setting and form. hearing. Absolutely.
1: And there's That's PRUs right. and there's EBDs. There you and- go. All they've done is change the names, change the labels. I hear you. And and, and by the way, this is the beauty of it. This is how you polish one thing, but you bring it back a different way.
0: Right, right. And
1: by the way, a clever ruling class is very good at that.
0: I love the analysis that you provide here of sort of class, race, and gender. And for us to, you know, keep all of that in mind, low teacher expectations, another mechanism you mentioned before. You know, you spoke of PRUs, people referral yes. units, that is. Um, and so we talk talk about school discipline as another mechanism by yes. which. Way- Exclusion. Exactly. And no, for instance, in the context where I did my work, they used to call, <laughs> they did not send the children home. It wasn't like a day exclusion. In some cases that happened, but they right. had a specific classroom they were t- referred to as internal or it's called the inclusion room. And it's for the kids who are actually excluded from class. And yes. I remember hearing from some of the young people that like, they must think we're stupid. That, that, we reckon, that we don't know what this room yes. is about. But when you went there, the reason that was challenging was that these students were given rudimentary work to do, it brought me right back to yes. much of your descriptions of education in some normal streams. It brought yes. me right back to some of the depictions in um, Steve McQueen's small acts where we get to yes. see what the, the l- low level work these children were being asked to do in those classes, right? So yes. I want to make it clear to the audience that there's some fundamental mechanisms of inequality that were around in the 1970s. We may have modified them a bit. We may have changed the name, but the right. fundamental for, um, function of these mechanisms remain the same to marginalize, Absolutely. to render Subnormal, normal, or I love the verb you use to make, right, speaking to the social construction here of these yes. outcomes, to yes. make a particular group marginalized, right? Um, and I love how you think about The white working classes is being positioned in relation to this. I love how you think about the work of cross-class coalitions. I love how you think about um, the importance of racial coalitions. But I also want to underscore from a Black feminist point of view, the importance of gender, which you note in your work. Because, for instance, earlier you said, um, you you said, you know, class supremacy and race supremacy. I'm paraphrasing here based on your work were the yes. two dominant ones you know gender may not seem as obvious to us no but i want to tell you if you if we pay attention to inequalities that prevail in schools particularly as experienced by black girls we will see that uh, sometimes it's because of the comparisons that we make that we miss it? what's happening to black girls and ethnic minority girls in schools because we're often comparing them to the boys but if you compare black girls for instance to white girls we will see that their achievement Yes. often lags relative to their um, the white yes. female counterparts. So, yes. those of us who are deeply committed to anti-racism yes. have to be attuned to the gendered particularity of racism right? and how it plays out in schools. Absolutely. And we have to be sensitive to the fact that those who
1: rule are very good at playing the game, playing us against each other. They will play black girls against black boys. They will play blacks against white working class. A recent study done by the Ministry of Education, the Department of Education, and the recent report of a select committee of parliament, all of them saying you know, the white working class is being neglected. And you know, in other words, they're using it as a kind of a divide and rule. Instead of yeah. saying, we have been neglecting the white working class for what, 2,000 years? So maybe we should start doing something about them. And it has nothing to do with Black people. Don't make no comparison. Give the impression that Blacks they make so much noise, they're doing better now. And the people who are suffering the most now is the white working class. That is the tone and the
0: import of these recent reports. And it's even more dangerous, I would argue, um, when you when these reports can be written and led <laughs> by members of minoritized communities, right, who advance these arguments, right, in a context that um, is politically charged and divisive, for the very reasons you describe, right. Remember, Um, in all periods of human history, all
1: minorities, oppressed minorities, and oppressed majorities have always had house slaves. They weren't all called house slaves because they weren't called technically slaves, but the concept of house slaves and field slaves, the concept of people who, in fact, in order to gain privileges, power, prestige, material position, and so on, will adopt the outlook of the ruling class, of the oppressor. And we must bear that in mind. I like to put it in a funny way that people might say, ah, that's a bit jarring. That's not really a good analogy, but I think it is. And that is the Stockholm syndrome. I have seen one or two blacks in America that I've seen on video, I've seen on the TV news, who fiercely defend Donald Trump, fiercely, and call on people to vote for Donald Trump. And when you hear them, and when you know that anybody in their right mind will realize the amount of racist, shall we say, you can't even call them dog whistles because you can hear the whistle. You can hear the whistle. They're loud what and clear. When you can't hear the, dog can hear the whistle, but you can hear the whistle. They're not even dog whistles. They're ordinary whistles, racist whistles. Whistles, and yet they are people. And what is going on there is not just a question of backs who are getting an an advantage position, power, prestige, material wealth, but also even those who are not, even those who are not, they do so for the same reason that people who are being kidnapped and kept by the kidnappers for a long period of time, many weeks or many months, in our case, it's a few hundred years, and support and defend the kidnappers. Stockholm syndrome. I think some of our people who take this kind of position And defend what is going on. Some are doing business of personal reward, prestige, power, material wealth. Others are victims of an extended, multi-century Stockholm syndrome.
0: I appreciate your your comments, Bernard. Coming to a close, and I want to thank you for the historical and political context you shared regarding the impetus. For um, this key text, how the Western Child has made education so normal. I'm grateful for your comments in relation to its impact. Um, w- one of the reasons I love it is because it's public work, what we would now call public sociology, right? Um, particularly in relation to sociology of education um, that is accessible written in a simple, not simplistic way, but written in an accessible fashion so that it is cannot be relegated to the academy, but it can be used for the public good. I wondered if you could talk with me about the implications of public work. If you could speak to early career researchers, doctoral students, um primary and secondary school students who may hear this podcast and may say, you know what? Sounds like I want to be a sociologist and I want to do something for the public good. What are, to your mind, some tips, right? For making sure that the work that we do has public implications, has public impact?
1: Well, that's a fascinating question, which no one has ever posed to me before. Absolutely fascinating question. You're welcome. You have I have to think <laughs> really fast. And I must tell you that my answer is as follows: if you are a youngster, about to embark on a career academic career but want to do so as a public academic and listen to the people. Go into the communities that are mm. most disadvantaged, that are in greatest need and hear what the people have to say. Just hear them, look at them, see what they do, see how they cope, see how they manage, see how they stretch a dollar and what happens when they can't stretch a dollar anymore. Discover what are the Junctures, the points at which they can't function, they become dysfunctional. What are the issues that bring some down and manage to keep some just their nose above water and nursing? And that will tell you what research projects undertake. In economics, in sociology, in political science, in anthropology, if you're looking from a different methodology, you know. And, and, so, and the traditional sociologists. The fact is that the only way you can really come to grips with identifying research which is authentic and authentically useful to the people is to
0: listen to the people. You yes. were held accountable. You were asked. You were commissioned to do a particular yes. kind of work. Yes. The community created a venue in which you had to share the results. They did told you how yes. you need to transform that. They created right. public platforms. They created yes. Media, yes. media opportunities for yes. you have to have a They the funds to publish the book. There you go. Oh, wow. to go and sold it. Did everything. Uh, can you? Wow. Did that's everything. wow.
1: Everything. Wow. wow. From beginning to end, they wow. recruited me. They said, you have to do it. They basically told me how to go about doing it. Um, They raised the money to pay a printer. They took the book and it was printed and carried it door to door and sold it. In other words, at every stage of the operation, that is why I keep saying, especially to young people, that I was incidental to this thing in the sense that I didn't come with the intention, I'm going to write a book. Of education that's got to, you know, ignite and mobilize and organize people to achieve X, Y, Z. The Community came to me on the dance floor and said, "You are in a position. You might have been there accidentally. You may have been there just to pay your school fees, but we need you. And this is what we want you to do. And this is how we're going to support you. And this is how we're going to take
0: what you do and carry it further." it's bringing to my mind what I would characterize personally as a public Black sociology. When you pay attention to the work of W.E.B. Du Bois, one of the founding figures of sociology, one who analytic strategy, what we call triangulation, right? The sort of overlapping of different um, kinds and forms of data. W.E.B. Du Bois was the pioneering figure motivating this work. Right, right. He, he. You know, in Philadelphia, um, went around, and knocked on every door of every black family, in order to figure out not simply their economic position, um, but to understand their meaning-making processes. Right. Um, that was a census. That was yes. a very. That's what I mean about activity. observing. That's what I mean about observing and talking. And listening to the people. That's what and, I and what I'm identifying, um, Bernard, is that while this was, on one hand, you could say it was unique to your context in the 1970s, but from a global perspective, we see from a transnational perspective. We see how, um, over throughout the 20th century, and I would argue even before, how Black communities and with the help of sociologists and activists have mobilized communities to produce knowledge that identifies inequalities, not simply to name them for their own sake, but to utterly transform them and hold the state to account. That is Absolutely. a tradition of Black sociology that it's I true. think British sociology needs to reckon with more. You true. know, we talk about the founding figures in British sociology and forget that Stuart Hall was one of the presidents in the 1990s. We forget, Absolutely. right? We think of the field, we've almost whitewashed the field to pay attention largely to, to, yes. to and rendered race, I would argue, um, a, a, a tertiary element of the field, right? A, yes. a minor, a pastime in the field. Yes. Um, yes. And I want to, with your comments, what is making me think about is the import of a public Black sociology that's Absolutely. of the people, for the people, that is the people science. It may have been yes. led by one specific person who has the, the training, some of mm-hmm. the skills to do it, yes. but the knowledge process, the knowledge production process is informed by the people, right? Or by Black people in particular. And I find yes. that to be an incredibly insightful way to think about what the future of sociology might be like right Absolutely. the past gives us insights into what the future ought to be like beyond Absolutely. just the implications or the demands of the university or beyond Absolutely. the demands yes. of the you know the ref which is a panel that goes around from university to university assessing the quality of the works produced in a department to give it a two star rating a three star rating or a four star rating the stars that matter are the ones we can identify in the communities that will actually make our world, our communities, brighter, fairer, more just um, than the ones that we are living in at this point. Following
1: up from what you're saying, I must tell you that I was approached several months ago. Mm. A team of educational psychologists, Black educational Mm. psychologists, and about three different organizations in which they they exist and they collaborate with each other. They're not in rivalry with each other. Mm. And this one said to me, we all want to make a difference. Mm. We want to do something that will change things. So we wanted to come and address our annual general meeting. We have a lot of questions to put to you because we want to do more than just be gatekeepers for the establishment, Um, helping them to decide which which child in the schools and within the schools, between the schools and within the schools. We want to be doing something that is helpful to the children and to the parents. We want to go way beyond the job description and the way we were trained. And I've done this from three different groups of, involving well over hundred people, all trained. Back in my day, there were one, there was one. Now there's well over hundred. And that says a lot to me. This is remarkable, you know, and it's in keeping with the point you're making, these as many black and brown, black and brown mm-hmm. uh, people in different fields of social science, but in particular educational psychology, child psychology, teaching, sociology. And what they're all saying is we would like to make a difference.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I think many of us are, um, as you rightly describe, teachers, psychologists, youth workers, parents want to make a difference. We have entered into, um, we we hone the craft of teaching and of mentoring and supporting young people because we care. Um, And I think that's important to recognize. And I appreciate that a great deal. Sociology to my mind gives us a window through which we can um, transform the world as it is, as we'd say in community organizing to the world as it should be. Um, And part of that, the the knowledge production process is part of that, right? Particularly if it is, as you um, have described for us, if it is community initiated to have an impact on that very community. Um, then it can most certainly make a difference. Bernard, thank you, thank you so much Um, Always a pleasure talking with you, my friend. I should let folks know that this is a transatlantic conversation. We are on a podcast, um, a British podcast while you're in Jamaica and I'm in the United States, right? All thinking about black Caribbean people and more broadly um, race inequality and British sociology, Um, uh, but thinking about it from an international perspective. Thank you so much for your time, Bernard. And thank you everyone for listening. Thank Thank you for listening to the Spotlight Series. If you're interested in hosting an episode, get in touch.